it's a decent chance I'm going to not give up. It's my Any other songs you want to run through again? Oh, yeah. I do. A lot of up and down this morning, so. <laughs> um, we are starting a brand new sermon series, and I kind of told you this last week that uh, the last sermon in the last series is kind of the first sermon in this series. We're going to spend a lot of time this month talking about the idea of loving our enemies. Um, and I, I want to encourage you that as we lead up to Easter, in many ways, I believe the Easter story is very much the story of how God loved those who had declared themselves his enemies. It's important for us to recognize that because while Christ calls us to love our enemies, sometimes I think that we are in the, the habit of thinking that that means we need to pick who our enemies are going to be. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. Uh, Jesus tells me to love my enemies. Someone has to be my enemy. I might as well be that guy over there, right? Isn't that kind of how we feel at times? Well, if I can't identify an enemy, how can I possibly love them? But I want to tell you this morning that I think in some ways, the fact that there are enemies is, is a problem of the human heart, when we look at scripture, it doesn't take us a whole lot of time to find that there is a defect in humanity, a way of thinking about one another that is counter to what God desires for us. And so uh, I want to I do what a lot of people do and go all the way back to the book of Genesis. You're probably going to say this morning, every time we start like a new sermon series, Chris goes back to Genesis. And I, I'm going to tell you, the first six chapters of the book of Genesis are the most theologically rich in the Bible. They are so essential to understanding much of the teaching of Jesus, much of the problem of humanity, but also much of the way that God intends to resolve the problems that humanity faces. And so I, I want to encourage you, grab your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be in chapter 2, 3, and 4 this morning. And I want to talk about this idea that I think God has built us for intense emotions that our feelings, when they are, are really big feelings, are in fact reflecting an intention that God has for us. Micah read for us this morning from Genesis 2 and, and started with this uh, kind of statement about what God did to fulfill a need for Adam. It says in Genesis 2.18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. You all know this. I, I, I'm, I'm almost positive about it. Most people in Western society know the story of Adam and Eve, and they know that God made a woman for Adam out of the rib. This is not strange knowledge to us, uh, or out of his side, that God has formed a special, a special and unique individual for Adam. And a lot of times we like to extrapolate this specifically towards marriage, and I think there's a lot to be said for that because shortly after Adam becomes a poet and uh, you know, expounds on how much he loves his new wife, it says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. There's a lot of reason to draw some connection to marriage from this passage. But God's initial statement was, it's not good for man not to have a wife, it's, it's not good that the man should be 
alone. Now, I'm going to say a good solution to loneliness is a healthy marriage. I think there's a lot to be said for having a spouse by your side who's going to support you, walk alongside you, help you to be the person that God wants you to be. But God's identification of the problem that Adam is facing is a problem of community. It's a problem that he lacks other people to be with. Adam's recognition is that there is no helper in all of creation suitable for him. But God's recognition is that Adam needs companionship. And so when Adam encounters the woman for the first time, it says, And the Lord, uh, the rib the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He's, he's literally being a poet here. In, in the Hebrew, it is this beautiful little poem, and there's wordplay that exists in there. And fortunately for us, the wordplay does kind of play out a bit in English, but it's, it's beautiful how strongly Adam feels when he encounters the helper that God has made for him. This has been a, a guy that's kind of silent in the text up until this point. Now, he had a job of naming all the animals, but we don't ever read him like naming the animals, right? The first words that are recorded of the man are his excitement and enthusiasm about another person. The bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. That's intentional. We should be enthusiastic about the community that God has given to us, about the people that God has placed in our lives. We should have an overflowing sense of gratification for what God has given us in the gift of other people. Now, obviously, this should be absolutely magnified in the, in the marital relationship, right? We should be tremendously grateful for the spouse that God has given us. If you're not grateful for your spouse, you should come to my class this morning so that I can set you straight, because we're going to start talking about marriage in our class this morning, and, and we're starting in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. But I want to tell you, it is absolutely essential for us to recognize that the, the natural reaction to human community is positive, overwhelming gratitude. That's what God wants from us. That's what God built us for. And yet, the second encounter that we have with the man speaking in the book of Genesis, I don't know if you've ever put this together or not, but you have, you have this moment here, and then you flip one chapter over, and I want you to see what it is that happens, okay? So, God has come looking for Adam and Eve in the garden because they are hiding themselves, because they have eaten from the tree, because they have been deceived. Now, some of you are saying, ah, you know, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy that Eve was deceived. You know what? Paul also says in the book of Romans that Adam was at fault for this. They together were deceived. They both fell into a trap. They both ended up eating the fruit from the tree. Adam didn't think suddenly, well, Eve is eating it. It must be all right for me to do so. But God comes looking for them and he says, who told you that you were naked? This is directly to Adam. 
Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? In our household, my expectation and my hope would be that my children would be like, yes, Father, I ate from the tree which you told me not to eat. Please forgive me, right? Now, that doesn't happen. That's not the way it actually looks in our house, right? It's, ah, well, you know, eating from the tree. You know, I'll ask Micah, did you eat my burrito, my leftovers? He doesn't usually do that. He's pretty good about it. But occasionally it happens. He's 15 and he's growing, right? And there's food in the fridge. Did you eat my burrito? Well, Emma ate my leftovers. You know, that's kind of the way that it tends to work. And we see that this is not something unique to like modern day situations or sibling relationships. The first instinct that Adam has, look at this. God says, have you, and he says, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me fruit of the tree. And I ate, right? (laughs) It's ridiculous because he begins with, no, you know, I'm not really the problem here, God. It's that woman that you gave to me. And yeah, I ate, but it was really her issue, not me. What was it he just said about her? This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she came out of man. She shall be Isha because she came out of Ish. This beautiful poetry that he has about her. And like, you, you've known guys that like in their 20s are, you know, dating a girl who's maybe going to be their wife and they suddenly become a poet and you haven't even been able to like catch them tying their shoes. They're still wearing Velcro. And now they're a poet, right? That's kind of Adam. Just a minute ago, he was a lump of clay and now he's a poet And the next passage, when he's been caught doing something he's not supposed to do, he is now making an enemy for himself. Have you ever read it that way before? It's not just that he's drawing on like, well, you know, who's really to blame here? He is making an enemy of the woman He was created to be ecstatic about. She is the problem. She's the reason for my failure. And maybe, God, you're a little bit to blame too. Because you gave her to me. Third chapter of the Bible. And man has already declared God and the rest of humanity, his enemy. Is it any wonder then that the first teachings of Jesus are all about having good relationships with the other people in your life? As we get to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, it's almost all about right relationship between yourself and other people because Jesus tells us if you can't love your brother whom you have seen, how can you love God whom you can't see? And so he begins his ministry to the people that are right in front of him by addressing the need for right relationship between them. And it's not just an Adam and Eve problem because we've already identified it happens with my children in my household. Sometimes it happens between my wife and I. Sometimes it happens between people in the church, right? We can all recognize this is a pattern that exists in humanity. When we fail, 
we oftentimes want to point a finger at who caused it to happen. We want someone other than ourselves to be responsible for our trouble and difficulty in life. And it doesn't skip generations. Because the next story in Scripture, comprehensive as it is, is about two brothers. It says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord, not and offering, an offering. Siri got a little happy in you know, correcting my, my uh, dictation there. Brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their father, uh, fatter portions. Not their father portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. Now how many of you have read this before and been like, this is because God is a barbecue man and not a salad man, right? God is all about having the fatty portions smoked low and slow. You know, it's brisket that's being described here. Or, you know, a good smoked lamb shank or something. And I generally agree with you because I think that there's a reason that God talks about delighting in the aroma of the offerings of the Israelite people when they're in good relationship with him. But we've made this a thing about meat and vegetables. And I want to tell you this morning, that's not what this is. You go to the book of Leviticus and there are actually almost as many discussions of offerings of grain and the fruit of the land as there are offerings of animal sacrifice. Now, they're for completely different purposes. I want to be clear. God has intentions behind them that are wildly different from one another. But God delights in the grain offering God is pleased with the grain offering. God requests the grain offering. And you know what? That's a good thing if you're a farmer of the land and not a man who shepherds sheep. Did you ever notice that? What is Cain going to offer besides the fruit of his labor? We want to get on Cain's back for being a farmer here and offering what he has to offer but that's not what the text says. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Notice it's the person that comes first in this situation. God has no regard for the person, and as a result, no regard for their offering. And sometimes we've taken this next little bit uh, where God tells Cain what he's going to tell him. I'm, I'm not giving away the goods yet. And we've, we've extrapolated some ideas that aren't found there. Okay, So Cain recognizes that this has not gone well for him. It says, and Cain was very angry and his face fell. This means he became downcast and he was angry and he wouldn't look toward heaven anymore. Read in scripture where this phrase, his face fell, and, and you find that it's oftentimes when someone no longer has God in their thoughts, but is dwelling and stewing on something that is not intended for them to dwell and stew on. Cain has become very internally focused at this point. God has no regard for me or my sacrifice. And God explains himself. He says, why are you angry? 
Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? God has no regard for Cain and his sacrifice. There is something going on in Cain's life, some disposition, some feeling, some emotion, maybe some activity that God would label as not doing well. And we've tried to make that about the offering that God receives from Cain and not about the character of who Cain is. If you do well, will you not be accepted? We can give all we want. We can fill those baskets a thousand times. We could build 750 wells and God is going to say, yeah, but do you, do you love mercy and not just sacrifice? Do you love looking holy or do you love being righteous? These are two very different things. I want to tell you this morning, and I, I think I had mentioned this last week, righteousness, as far as the Hebrews were concerned, was not just the idea of being good outwardly, right? Having the right uh, manner of worship, the right practice of sacrifice, the appropriate level of memorization of the scriptures. All those things were good, and they did it, and that was supposed to happen, and God wanted them to. He wanted them to write scriptures on their doorposts and have them in little boxes on their heads and have prayer tassels to remind them that they were supposed to be praying on a regular basis and live out all these beautiful, wonderful traditions that he had intended for them. But if you remember last week when we were looking at the book of Isaiah, Isaiah says, you all are so good at those things. And you have people starving and living on the streets. Isaiah invents a phrase, the wandering poor, in order to describe homelessness, which was an aberration in Israel that had not existed up until that point. There was no word for homelessness in Israel until Isaiah mashed together two Hebrew words to try to describe this horrific state of affairs. Because it's possible to offer a sacrifice, things that God would otherwise find beautiful, things that God would otherwise request, things that God might ask for, but for your heart to be so broken that God looks at the worship that you offer him and he says, you know what? You don't love people enough. Your sacrifice means nothing to me. I'm a little heated about this this morning. Jesus says it better than I do. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and capital G, God. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. What is the order of worship here? 
here it's a song, the welcome, a couple more songs. But in Scripture, it is go make right with your brother and then come and do your worship thing. If you have a broken relationship in your life and you haven't tried to mend it yet, Jesus might be asking you what you're doing here this morning. Have you loved sacrifice more than mercy? Because mercy is not just saying, I feel compassion for someone who's in a bad state. It's desiring to have good relationships with other people. So this morning, I just, I want to I lay it out there. The reason we have enemies is an us problem. In 90% of the cases, the people that we would point to and say, that person my, is my enemy over there. That person, they're the problem. And Jesus would say, so what have you done to fix the problem? What have you done to make right relationship with them? Are you bringing me a whole brisket to offer? And in your heart, you're thinking, I'm so much better than my brother. It doesn't matter how well you cook that brisket, God's going to be unhappy. And I'm disappointed by that as a barbecue man. God wants us to have right relationships with one another so we can have a right relationship with him. That means we can't have room for enemies. A couple of weeks ago, I was having uh, coffee with someone, and, and it just it dawned on me that there is no point in Scripture when God tells Christians, make those people your enemy. In fact, when Paul talks about who we are at war against, it's not other people. It's powers and principalities. It's systems. It's things that lie behind those systems. We are not called to make enemies. We are called to make enemies into brothers. And from the very beginning of time, we started the other way around. Who is my problem? My brother is my problem. My wife, the only other person in all creation that God gave to me that I was so ecstatic to have right here in front of me, I now declare my enemy. And when we frame it like that, we realize how ridiculous it is that we walk around carrying hatred and anger for the people that God has placed here for our benefit and so that we might benefit them. This is a problem of the fierceness of our hearts. We can feel fierce, intense, powerful love for people in our lives. But when we need someone to blame, it's so easy to turn that same fierceness into hatred, into anger, into animosity. And so what do we do to combat this? What do we do to love those who, for whatever reason, are in a position of anonymity towards us? I'm going to suggest to you this morning that the first thing we do is we pray for God to give us guidance in mending our relationships with them. 
and then we actually act on it. Because it's easy to pray and feel like, God, help me forgive so-and-so for the time that they said something bad about me behind my back and I didn't even know it happened until three months ago and this was 12 years ago and now I'm really angry about the thing that they don't even remember they said but someone else has been holding on to as blackmail for the relationship to drive a wedge between us. Hypothetical situation, by the way. But how many of us have been there before where we're angry about something that someone doesn't even remember having done? It's up to us to make peace. Jesus doesn't say, identify a bunch of people as your enemies so you can make peace with them. He tells us to love those who are our enemies. He tells us to make right with them. It's our responsibility. Paul says, and as much as it is up to you, Live at peace with everyone. So this morning, uh, I'm announcing something that we're going to start next Sunday. Uh, this is going to become a pretty regular routine. I'm gonna, gonna, we're going to get to the end of one project, and we're going to move on to the next, and we're going to reflect on the one project. This morning, we are tying a bow, at least for the time being, on our special offering. We're talking about putting, putting wells in places where water is not available right now. That's a good thing. We're not going to forget about it after this Sunday. We're going to come back to it, but we're going to do something new starting next week. Um, I have been in contact with a fellow for a couple of years now. Uh, he gave me a booklet last year. It was 30 days of prayer, and it was 30 days of prayer over the course of Ramadan. And some of you just got your hackles up. You're like, oh, Ramadan, that's the Muslim thing, right? It's prayer by Christians for those in the Muslim world. Those who, for 30 days, are going to be praying and fasting and hopefully finding themselves in a spiritual state to potentially hear God speak to them. A few years back, a couple decades back, someone identified, you know, I've never prayed that God would do a work in the Muslim world before. This would be a good time to do it. And they put together a little booklet for themselves and they prayed each day through Ramadan for the Muslim world. They prayed for leaders to turn to Christ. They prayed for individuals to have their hearts turned towards Jesus, whom they recognized as a prophet, but could not accept as the Messiah, the Son of God. And they've done it every year since. And I did it last year. I found it really beneficial. I thought it was powerful to be praying for people I might never meet in the same way that I think it's powerful for us to drill wells for people we may never see until the other side of eternity. And so I'm going to challenge you. We have 50 of these books. It's not quite enough for everyone in this room, but it is enough for every family in this room. I want you to pray between now and next week. I want to ask you to consider praying for 30 days for people in the Muslim world to come to know Christ, for their lives to be bettered, for the leaders in those countries to care more about the people that are in their care than about political power, to pray for all the situations that face a part of the world that none of us, most of us, will never have the opportunity to visit, but for people that God loves there that oftentimes are cast as our enemies. 
but God has created them to be our brothers. So I'm going to ask you to pray for the next week if this is something that God is calling you to do. Next Sunday, I'll be at the back of the auditorium with a box full of these books, and I'm going to encourage you to consider taking one home and to pray every day that while people are seeking God, that they will find him, that God will speak to them in powerful ways about the truth of who Jesus is and how deeply he loves them. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to be your people, and we recognize that in order to do that, we have to love those that have traditionally been cast as our enemies. Father, we we believe that there are people in this world who are enslaved to powers and principalities that want them to be led away from you. And Father, we want to participate in the kingdom of heaven that is calling all to come and be in relationship with you. And so, Father, I pray this morning that as we we count the dollars that were offered this morning, that people would be reconciled to you through the, the, the well that is built through the water that is given. Father, as we approach this this next 30-day period, uh, while the Muslim world is is hyper-focused on prayer and fasting and worship, we pray, God, that we would be people who are desperately seeking for them to be reconciled to you through the only name in heaven or earth by which people might come to be in relationship with you. Father, I pray that we are good stewards of the ministry of reconciliation. I pray that we are people who deeply love even those that have cast themselves as our enemies. Just as you, Father, have loved us deeply and have sent your Son to die for us, to rise for us, to give us new life, even while we were your enemies. Help us to love with such a fierce love. It's all this that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have need of the church this morning, if I can pray with you, if I can walk alongside you, if our elders can do that, if there are some ladies here this morning that that you need some prayer and guidance from, I'm going to be at the back of the auditorium and you can meet me there and I can either be the one to pray with you or I can find someone that you'd be comfortable having pray with you. I'm going to ask that you stand as we sing.